is to the gospel according to the good doctor, Luke. The Bible in your pew is the NIV. We use that translation, the 84 edition, by the way. We use that translation. We also have it on the screen. Makes it easy to follow along if you'd like. You'll remember if you've been here, and if not, you can always listen to the sermons. You can watch them now because of the live stream, the video. It's all archived. Everything is there. It's all available at no charge, and you can catch up. Once we hit chapter 5, the ministry really began to track for Jesus. His Galilean ministry, you'll remember. John's in prison. He's, 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 he's done. Jesus is really beginning to hit his stride. We went through in the beginning of chapter 5 that cosmic catch of fish, remember? Then we saw that Jesus can touch the untouchable with the leper Lord and the law. We saw that Jesus was shocking, the things he would say and do. Last week, we took a look at what was called the tax collector collected. Jesus has a tendency to collect the most unseeming people in The ones that no one wants to be around, Jesus seems to draw unto himself. And we saw that last week. And it was just an amazing uh, narrative to enter into. And this week, we have a title called The Bridegroom. There's, There's only a few verses, but there is so much here. And it is so rich and so important. Remember, one of the things that we talk about. Listen very, very carefully when you come to the Scriptures. You can't just read the Scriptures with your mind. It's not designed to just... You know, expand the intellect, head knowledge. It's not. When we come to the scriptures, we read it with our hearts and our minds. The heart really engages us at a deep level. And we enter into the story. The goal is to enter into the narrative. How does your story intersect with God's story? How do you enter into it? Remember what you're looking for? The original author, he wrote to an audience. So that's the first thing that we're looking at. Who, who, who was the good Dr. Luke writing to? But remember, behind every human author is the ultimate author of Scripture, which is God. So God then has something to speak into your life today, 2,000 years later. So it's important that we look at it from both of those contexts. And remember what I've said many, many times. When you come to a story, you come into the narrative in the Scripture, and you enter in... You want to make sure that you don't put yourself in the wrong position in the story. In all of the stories, you're never Jesus. So once you have that down, no, it's helpful to be reminded. Because you could read one of these stories, like today, and you'll go, oh, boy, those Pharisees, they're really some bad people. I don't do that. Be careful. We are all recovering Pharisees. We are. Some of you got still a long, 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 long way to go. I know you. I have the furthest to go. No, listen, here's the whole point. These stories are designed to draw us in. The writer wants to draw us into the story, to really get a, a sense of what God wants us to know. So we go in with our hearts and our minds. And, because remember, in, in, it, it's not designed to give us information that, at, at the basic level, but it's designed for transformation. And the only way we begin to transform is because of the heart. You'll see the Pharisees... We're not being transformed by the word of God because the heart was not engaged. So we come into the story. We see where we are in the story and we see what God would have us to know. And then how does that story apply to us today? We'll look under it under the heading of bridegroom today. Okay. Luke 5, 33 to 39. Just a few verses. And then next week it looks like we're ready to launch out into chapter 6. But for today we'll take a look at this wonderful. This is the the very first parable as well in in Luke. This is the very first parable, very simple parable. It explains itself and it's easy to understand, but let's see how it applies. The bridegroom, 5, 33 to 39, hear now the word of God. 
They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. Told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the new wine skins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is better. May God add his rich blessing to his inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Let us pray. Father, we are here by divine design. No one here by accident today, which means you have something to speak into each heart. No one came here interested in listening to the imagination of a man. They came hungry and thirsty for the revelation of God. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation, whether those here in this sanctuary or by way of the internet. Raise them from death to life. Give the gift of repentance and faith that only you can give. For those in the midst of storm winds that are blowing, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired, weary, and heavy laden, make it a word of rest. All things to all people that some might be saved. Father, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, very simply, three headings. Number one, under the heading the bridegroom. The ruined and perverted religion. We'll take a look at that. Number two, the right personal relationship. What they were missing. And then finally, number three, here we'll get into that deep practical application. The bridegroom and his bride. How does this speak to us today where it finds us? But before we launch out, let's deal with the parable. This is the first one. It's very easy to understand. And it makes some powerful points about the truths of the gospel. So let's look at the parable first. And then we'll hit our three points very briefly. Verse 36. Go to 36. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. Well, you know why. And then Jesus explains it. If he does, he will have torn the new garment. So now the new garment is ruined. But the patch from the new won't match the old. So that doesn't help. So that doesn't make any sense. What is he saying here? Judaism is the old garment. Judaism is is the garment. And he's saying you, you can't patch the gospel into Judaism. Now let me make this perfectly clear to you. You cannot patch the gospel into anything. And if you can't patch it into our nearest neighbor, Judaism, you certainly can't patch it into secularism and and Buddhism or Hinduism or, or, or any other ism. The gospel stands alone. It cannot be woven in. You can't add Jesus to whatever it is that you're doing. That's what he's saying. 
you, you don't tear something from the new and patch it into the old. He's, you don't do that. But he's not done. Now he's going to go deeper. You ready? You're going to see now the scribes and the Pharisees are compared to old wineskins. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst. Well, why? Typically, older wineskins become less pliable. They become more brittle. Wineskins are, 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 are skins of, of the animals, the goats and, and, and the sheep. And they'll use the skins and they'll prepare the skins and they'll set it and make the neck out of it to be able to pour. And, and, and when they're new, they're very soft and very pliable. But over time, they become brittle. Now, when you put new wine into an old wineskin, the new wine will ferment a bit. And that will generate some, 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 some gases and, and it'll expand. And it will burst the old wineskin. So, you understand what he's saying? So, they're the, they're the old wineskin. He, he's, he's the new wine that's being poured. He says, you can't just pour that in. You can't contain it. So he says, if he does, the new wine will burst your skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. What's the new wine? The new wine of the gospel. The new wine of the gospel must be poured into the new wineskin of grace. That's the picture that Jesus is painting. This is something wholly other than what you are practicing right now today. That's what he's telling them. This is something that can't just be... You don't add Jesus to what you're doing. You can't put the gospel into Judaism. Jesus could not be contained within their religious rituals. And then, of course, in verse 39, here's how he closes the parable. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new. He's really speaking to their hearts. For they say the old is better. You ever heard this phrase in the church? We've always done it this way. Right? Yeah, sure you have. We all have. We have a tendency to get comfortable in our zones of comfort. We close off our minds to thinking about anything that God could be speaking into our minds and our hearts. And we just say, we've always done it this way. It's the way we're going to do it. So Jesus said, no one after drinking the old wine even wants the new. You have no interest in what it is I've come to deliver. You're closed off to it. You, 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 are, you are not looking for a savior because you cannot see yourself as a sinner. So you have no interest in what it is I have come. What, you will name him, the angel says to Joseph, you'll name him Jesus. Why? He will save his people from there. The Pharisees and scribes didn't need a savior. They were saving themselves. So they had no interest in this new wine. The new wine of the new covenant, Jeremiah says. The wine of the covenant. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. No interest. Know this. Jesus did not come to repair. Jesus came to redeem. This is not repair work. There's no repair work after the fall. It's redemption. Remember, you have that four-part 
overview of the scripture. You have creation, which God puts his stamp of approval and says everything is good, 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 good. Everything is very good. Then you have the fall. Then you have redemption. And then you have the consummation. We're living in that third phase, redemption. Consummation is coming. So that's, that's where we are at, okay? So now let's take a look at this passage very briefly. What does it say to us today? How does it speak into your life right now where you are today? Three things in every sermon. What does the text say? What does the text mean? And what does the text require of you and of me? Number one, the ruined and perverted religion. I'm going to look at a couple things very simply. How was the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes, Judaism of that day, how was it, how was it defined? It was defined by countless rituals, rituals and ceremonies, but there were three primary aspects to their religious life that, you, that could identify them as, as Jews, religious Jews, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at it from Matthew chapter 6, but go back to verse 33 in chapter 5. Let's see it here. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Pause here for a minute. Take a look at this. Verse 533. The reason that he's saying that is that John is no longer with his disciples. John cannot teach his disciples. John is gone. John is in prison. So it seems to suggest that John's disciples have kind of got together with the disciples of the the scribes and Pharisees and wanting to really be super religious to, to prove that they're their repentance is true, they start adding everything they can to their religion. So he says to them, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Okay, so that's the first passage from the, what we just read. Now we're going to look at giving. Giving, Matthew 6, 1 to 4. Okay? There's three things that they did that really caused problems, and this was one of them, and we'll look at the other two. Matthew 6, 1 to 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Can you imagine that? Jesus wouldn't say that if it wasn't something that happened. Some of these guys must have had trumpeteers following them around. And when they put something in, they I can't imagine that. That's whacked. But they must have been doing it. But the deeper message is what? Who are you giving to? When you do that, you're giving to yourself. You're seeking the applause of man, not the approval of God. These guys had no heart relationship to God. Everything they did, they did for the applause of man. So Jesus says, no. And he goes on here. When you give, do not announce it as the hypocrites do. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You give because your heart... You, why do you give? Why do you give? There's the question. If you give out of duty, don't give. That's not the, that, God doesn't want that. We give out of a heart of devotion that overflows with thanksgiving because of all that God has given to us. That's why we give. Then we are finally freed. We are freed from what? Everything that we possess. Remember what I've told you a thousand times. It's not what you possess. doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. It has nothing to do with what you possess. It's what possesses you. What has a hold of your heart? What has a grip on you? And it's easy to figure it out. 
We look at discretionary time and money, and don't say I don't have either of those. We all have a little bit of it, some more than others. What do we do with it? Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. It's about a relationship with me, with God, and you think it's about these rituals. So he says, you've, you've messed the whole thing up. You've perverted. And one quick point. When he says the old, he is not, many have misunderstood this, he is not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about how they have perverted the religion of Judaism. They perverted it. What was the religion of Judaism rooted in? It wasn't rooted in the law. Because how does the law open in Exodus? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, how does it, it starts with what? The indicative, who you are. And then the imperative. Because of what I have done for you, now here's the best way you could live in order to receive the blessings I have in store for you. It was always rooted in grace. It was always, they were delivered in the Exodus first, then the law. These guys twisted the whole thing, okay? So we see it in the giving. Now we're going to get to the two things that are in the passage. I gave you that just by way of background. But now the two things in the passage, we'll look at prayer and we'll look at fasting, all right? Prayer, Matthew 6, 5, when you pray. Jesus wasn't saying that my, my disciples don't fast and don't pray. They're not fasting right now for a reason. I'll hit that. But they're praying. They were praying from beginning to end. But here's what he's talking about in prayer. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? The religious leaders. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. They have received their reward in full. How did they pray? You know, there's nothing wrong if it was coming from the heart. They, they had a ritualistic system of prayer. Generally three times a day. You remember reading that even in the Old Testament. Right? You, you read it and Daniel would, would bow down. Noon and three and six. These guys would stop whatever they were doing, wherever they were. But it wasn't the fact that they would stop just to pray. No, they had to go to the street corner. They had to go into the synagogue. They had to go where people could see them so they could see how spiritual they were. How serious they were about their, their religion. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't, you, you've received, if, if this is the way you're given and this is the way that you're praying... You have received your reward in full. Enjoy it. But he's not done. Now we're going to get to the deepest point of the passage. Right here in the fasting. Okay? And this is important that we see this. This is really important. This comes under what we would call the only mandated fast for the people of Israel. They had a mandated fast. You remember when that was? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was what? The day of? Tell them it's on the screen. It was mandated that the children of God would fast on Yom Kippur. That's all. You could fast for a variety of other reasons, but it was mandated by God to fast on the Day of Atonement. What do these guys do? You may, see, if you don't understand the background, then you miss one of the deepest, excuse me, one of the deepest points of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go up to the temple to pray. What does the Pharisee say? After I thank thee, O God, I'm not like other men. This guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. What does he say? I fast twice a week. What? See, we miss that if we don't understand what the requirements. The requirements are only once a year. So what is he saying? Once a year. I'm, 
whoever fasts once a year, they're not serious about their, their, their true religion. We do it twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. They fast, Mondays and Thursdays. So perhaps this celebration is taking place on a Monday or a Thursday. And they're just beside themselves. Why are you eating? Why are you drinking? Why are you celebrating? We fast. If you're serious about the faith, we fast. And Jesus says, oh, my goodness. So then he tells the true story of it. But here's what they did when they fasted. This was the challenge. And remember, remember who we are in the story. So they would get up on Monday. They would get their worst clothes, the stuff that was torn a little, and they put that on. And then they wouldn't wash their face, and they wouldn't comb their hair. They wouldn't even put a little dab of brill cream in there. Nothing. Nothing. Then they'd grab a little ash, a, a, a little, and they'd throw a little of the ash on just to, to really... To, and then they'd go out into public. And while they were in public, here's how they would go. Mm-hmm. I'm fasting for God. This is what this is. I'm not making it up. Okay, watch. I'll show you. You go, surely they couldn't be, they, they really didn't do stuff like, okay, watch. Watch, watch where I got all that. I didn't make it up. When you, now, now, now there's a command what? Notice there's three commands in here. Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. It's presupposed that we do what? We give, we pray, and fast. All three. So now he says, ready? Ready? When you fast, oh, do not look somber, somber, as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Uh, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you fast, this in the the original Greek, it's the oil, but this could be brill cream. Put brill cream on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What is he saying? Very simply. And we could go down a list of hundreds of other things they did. Everything you do has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with your relationship to God. You are so focused on your ritualistic religion, you have missed the most important part of, of the whole plan of God from beginning. And it was a relationship with him. That was the whole thing that was missed. You go back to the garden and what was the most important aspect of Adam and Eve's life? It wasn't Adam and it wasn't Eve. It was God. It was their relationship vertically to God. We lost that in the fall. So God gives the promise in 315 that that's coming back. So all of it started off well. Jesus is promised in 315. We, we, we launch out after the Exodus redemption. And now we see the whole story of redemption beginning to unfold. We see the sacrificial system and we see the tabernacle that's on the move in the wilderness. And then we go to the temple period and we see all of the sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood and all of it pointing toward the promised Lamb of God that John identifies. Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Why? To bring us back into relationship with God. It was never intended to be a religion. It was a relationship with the living God. 
So Jesus says, you've missed it. And worse than that, you're binding the hearts of all of these people that look up to you. I've come to set the captives free. Enough of this. And you will not be adding. You will not be adding this gospel to that mess that you're dealing. You you will not. It won't fit. It will not work. The old wineskins will burst. So there's, there's the picture. Corrupt, bankrupt, broken. Only one way forward. What's the way? Take a look. Right relationship. You have to have a right personal relationship. And here's how he puts it in its context. This is so, oh, we could spend weeks here, but we'll be very, very brief. 5, 34, and 35. Take a look. 5, 34, and 35. Ready? Jesus answered. Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? You understand that story. You don't go to a wedding to fast, right? Isn't that one of the neat things of going to the wedding, right? You look on that list and go, oh, look what they're having. Oof. Don't want to miss this. Right? Right? You check that cocktail out. Oh, don't, want to, ooh, don't want to miss this. All right? You don't fast. You don't, even if you were fasting, you, go, you break the fast. You go to the wedding, eat. You celebrate. So he's, he's drawing a picture of something they all understood. Where was the first wedding? Uh, the first miracle for Jesus? The wedding at Cana. What does he do? He turns water into wine. That is so deep and so symbolic. It's, it's, it, it can't go down that road right now. But that, that, it, 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 it's foreshadowing what's coming. We won't even talk about the stone water pots. We won't even get into any of that today. But it's foreshadowing what's coming. There's a wedding that's coming. This is the power of the gospel. So take a look at, I want to show you the relationships that we're given with the bridegroom. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. We'll look at that in a moment. And in those days they will fast. So fasting is coming. The bridegroom is here. The bridegroom will be taken. Now, there are portions of our relationship with Jesus that can really fit under a number of headings. But I'm going to show you that those are just really shadows to the one that matters most. So take a look. Ready? At the deepest level, your relationship with Jesus is not a king to a subject. Yet Jesus is king and you are a subject. You with me? Of course. It is not the teacher and student, yet Jesus is teacher and you are student. It is not shepherd and sheep, yet Jesus is the shepherd and you are the sheep. It is not master and servant, yet Jesus is master and you are the servant. It's not coach and player, yet Jesus is the coach and you are the player. What is it? It is the husband and the wife. It is the bridegroom and his bride. That changes everything. That not only takes us back to the garden in the original creation mandate, but we know that that original plan in the garden changes on the other side of glory. You're not given unto marriage. To your earthly spouse, why? You're given unto marriage to the bridegroom. But that's a picture in the Old Testament, in the creation narrative, Genesis 1 and 2, of what's coming. The promise. The promise that you've been given in Jesus. This is so rich. This is so powerful. I want to show you. Many have said, well, this is just a new idea that 
Jesus came up with and, and Paul built upon it in the New Testament, this bridegroom thing. No, what book do you read? What do you think Adam and Eve is all about? These aren't 66 individual disjointed books trying to teach you how to have your best life now. It's a single word from God that tells you it's, it's, self, it's God's self-disclosure telling you who he is and who you are and what he has done for you. So this imagery is everywhere in the Old Testament. I'll just pull a few up so that we can see this is not a new religion. The gospel, the gospel cannot be patched into Judaism. But there's nothing new. They perverted. So take a look. Old Testament imagery is clear. Isaiah 54. Is this not bridegroom imagery? For your maker is your what? Husband. What does that mean? Well, that's the bridegroom. Your maker is your bridegroom. The Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah 62, 5. Who doesn't love this one? As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Who's the bridegroom? So will your God rejoice over you. It explains it. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. I've come. This is the time to feast. And then, of course, Jeremiah 2, 2. Proclaim to Israel, the Lord says, I remember how as a bride you love. And followed me through the wilderness. Remember that? 40 years. And of course in the New Testament. Let me just give you one in Revelation. Then we go to the third point and we're done. Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and be glad. And give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Got it? Now. How does this apply personally? Number three. The bridegroom and his bride. Take a look. 535, and we will unpack one word because it's important. Watch what Jesus does here. Watch what Jesus proclaims in this text. But the time, nobody, nobody fasts during the wedding feast. Nobody fasts then. But the time will come when the bridegroom, a pyro is the Greek term for will be taken, but it's deeper than that. It's to be violently torn and ripped away. Listen now. Understanding that, walk through it again. But the time will... Right now, there's no time to fast. I'm here. But Jesus says, the time will come when the bridegroom is going to be a pyro, violently torn away. What does that mean? He just prophesied. Crucified, dead, and buried. Then you will fast. Then you will mourn. But not until then. But he said the day's coming. And they will fast. But right now they're not fasting. And besides, your fasting is so ritualistic, you have no idea what you're even supposed to be fasting for. You have no idea it's supposed to draw you closer to God. All it does is just move you further and further away from your relationship with him. But he says a day's coming. So now, watch this, how this fits. Luke 15, 15 and 16. Jesus said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Okay, so what is he saying? The kingdom of God is going to, the kingdom of God is here, but it's going to be fully established. He's coming, and I will eat it again when it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Something needs to take place. That apiro has to happen. I have to be crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day raised. And then the fast will be over. Now, track with me. Luke 24, 30, on the road to Emmaus. We won't unpack any of the details. You know what he's doing. He's with the two disciples who are distraught. He's walked with them on the road to Emmaus. He's going to walk beyond them, and they say, stay with us. Notice what Jesus does. And don't you have to ask the question, why? When he was with them at table, so he sits with them after the long walk, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Why add the story of the bread and the food why the fast was over now of course jesus is also saying what but if you if you leave it at the the physical body that's not enough yes you're going to be resurrected and have a physical body. isn't that good news isn't that good news and ain't going to be anything like the mess we're in right now look at this i cannot wait what a mess no i got a new one coming people no people you know they tell me all the time is oh Pastor, I know your knees are real. Why don't you go get new knees? Why don't you go get new knees? I got new knees already promised for me, and that cost me a dime. They're coming. Already on hold, waiting on me. Till I get there and the trumpets blow on that final day, the final day of judgment, right? All the dead in Christ will rise. And all those who are already there, what? New bodies. No aches, no pains, no mess. Can't wait. So Jesus eats to establish the fact that he's what? That he's not a ghost. I never, any time, ever watched Casper the Friendly Ghost? Remember that back in the day, you're old enough? He never had a meal. He never ate. Ghosts don't eat. So he's not a ghost. He's real. He's physical. You can touch him. He says, touch me. So, but that's not, that's not the deepest message. He's saying the fast is over. The morning is gone. I'm back. I've conquered sin, Satan, and death. Well, let's, let's go further. Luke 24, 41. Don't you have to ask why? And while they, were, while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked, do you have anything here to eat? Why? The fast is over. Oh, it gets even deeper. Check this one out. This is the best. He's on the beach. Disciples are fishing. They're distraught. We won't tell you the whole story. You remember, we preached in John, John 21. But now they see it's Jesus. They're coming to the shore. They're pulling the fish. Listen. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread, fish and bread. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Here you go. Don't miss it. Verse 12. Jesus said, come and have, what is breakfast? Break the, how do we close? This is, listen, I understand at this time, this is a time of, 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 celebration and feasting and our tears are tears of joy but they are mingled with great sorrow yes yes we know that remember the kingdom of god is here but it's not yet fully consummated remember creation fall redemption and consummation it's not fully consummated so we deal with pain and suffering and evil until we go into glory and until jesus comes and puts all of his enemies under his feet but we have to understand a couple key things jesus has achieved the victory Satan has been defeated. Sin has been destroyed. Sin no longer reigns in your life, but it remains. 
you still have to fight it and deal with it, but it doesn't rain. You can't say like Flip Wilson in the 70s, the devil made me do it. Don't do that. You did it because you wanted to do it. That's all. But we, 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 we know that it's been defeated. And ultimately, what's the most important enemy to be defeated? What's the one that has all of us by the throat at times? Death. Death. When people are ripped out from right from under us. Death. So how do we close this? Ready? Watch. This is, this is beautiful. This is you. This is today. Regardless of where this finds you. Whether you're, listen, whether you're riding the crest of the wave. Let's say you're riding the crest of the wave. You know, that's, that's symbolism for being on top of, but eventually after riding the crest of the wave, then what? And the waves crash over you. So it doesn't matter. Remember, three phases in life. In the middle of a storm. Coming out of a storm. Going back into a storm. Those are the three phases of life, right? That's it. So you know that's the promise. So how do you deal with it? How do you get through it? With, with any measure of joy, which we should have. Any measure of peace, Jesus came back in the upper room and said, peace be with you. How, how, by understanding the promise. So now, ready? We go back to the beginning. Genesis 2.22, real simple. The Lord God made woman from the rib, and he had taken it out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Okay, so now, God, God performs the first wedding, right? God performs the first wedding, and he creates the man, and he takes the woman from the man, and you can just picture, he walks down the center aisle in Eden and presents the woman to the man. And, and, and the holy covenant of marriage is established by God. God ordained the holy covenant of marriage, okay? So he's, he's done that. But there's, there's a problem there, because when you put the whole story together now, because you look at the beginning and you look at the end, we realize there's no marriage to our spouses in heaven, so we know there's something... Is, is, is there's something that this has to be pointing to. This can't be it. And think about it. There's, there's, there's no greater... There, I mean, you think about it. Those of you in the holy covenant of marriage and, 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 and that intimate connection of two becoming one flesh. And you think about that. And you think about the, the passion and the power and the joy that's contained in that. There's something even better than that. There has to be something better than that because we're not given to each other in, in, in heaven. We're married to someone else. But before we get there, something has happened. So take a look at this. We see the first marriage from God, but then we hear these words from Jesus. Now, why these words? Ready? Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, why would he say that? Because separation is possible. And really, there's two kinds of separation. So let me tell you about both. Number one, the separation of simply the marriage dissolving. And the numbers in the church are no different today than the numbers in in the unbelieving world. It's about 50%. So there's separation. Man, something, has got between the two. So he says, let, let, let no one separate what God has brought the two together to become one. But then even if it stays together, there's another aspect of separation, which is what? Death. So at death, we'll be separated, right? That's, that's the first marriage and what happened. But now there's a promise. Revelation 21.2. Watch this. And we're done. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's not a city. It's not a city coming down. It's the people. The people of the city. What's the church? The church isn't the building. The church of the people. So this is the people of God coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? A bride. A bride beautifully dressed for her what? Husband. The bridegroom. Here comes the bride. The bride is on the way down. But now, 
You don't hear Jesus say, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now what do you hear? You hear this from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Oh, don't miss this. Don't miss this today. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There. There it is. There's the whole passage. All put together in that final statement. There's a time of grief where the disciples will fast. The fasting is over. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and Satan and death, and you are now married to The Lamb of God. You are married to the bridegroom. And there will never be any opportunity for separation from him. Yet, on this side of the grave, you will have to deal with what? Evil and pain and suffering. And this is to remind you that the best is yet to come. This is the problem. Jesus in the wedding, he makes the wine. And and the, the that the attendant of the wedding tastes it and goes, this is better than the stuff we serve. What's the message to you? The best is yet to come. The promise is firm. All the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that promise has been given to you. Unless today you know in your heart you have never, ever put that ring on by grace through faith. You have never surrendered control to Christ. Let me make something perfectly clear. Today is a day of salvation to you here in this building and by way of the internet. Those of you who are watching, regardless of where you are, right now is a moment of salvation. Tomorrow, tonight, this afternoon, it may not be. Jesus, with outstretched arms and nail-pierced hands, says, Come. Come to me. Come as my bride. Come to the bridegroom. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. And come Now, do not delay. Come to me by grace through faith. And how do we come? How do see that this is a drawing of the spirit? You feel the stirring in your heart. God is moving in you right now. And you feel the urging of the Holy Spirit, and you cry out, as the task collector did, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And God is. And Jesus said, I will cast out in no wise anyone who comes to me. Come, just as you are. Bow before Christ. Receive him as the bridegroom. And know that from this moment forward, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the truth. That's the promise. And it's the only thing that will get you through the rest of this mess until we get to the other side. Trust in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now. We pray along with hearts right now by way of the internet who have never, ever, even in this sanctuary, never surrendered control to Christ. Never understood the truth of the gospel and yet today the scales from their eyes have fallen. You have thawed cold hearts. 
And you, God, by your grace, by your grace and your mercy, through the power of the Holy Spirit, now draw them to yourself. Oh, God, today is a day of salvation. And, Lord, for those who have walked perhaps decade after decade after decade with you, strengthen all of us in our faith. Give us a clear glimpse of the truth of the gospel that he who began a good work will one day complete it. Oh, God, how we look forward to that day. But until then, help us to do all that you have called us to do with all that you've called us to do it with in expanding the cause of the kingdom of Christ here today. These things we ask in the only name which men will be saved. Jesus Christ, in his name we all pray, amen. Would you please stand and continue to worship with us? You're hidden glory. 